Well, let's get into it, shall we? As we think through where we've been on this journey so far, last night, which seems like, in some sense, 24 hours ago, in some sense, like days ago, um, we talked about this idea of 100%, right? What it means to give God 100% of who we are. And we define that by God wants all of us, right? Not frozen turkeys. He wants above the waterline and below the waterline, that we would love Him fully. This morning, we looked at the idea of worshiping Him in sincerity with all of that we are in an authentic way, right? That we don't have wax in our cracks, so to speak. We are authentic believers that are living things out, right? And that's, that's what God wants for us. Now, I'm going to pose the question to you guys as we think about that, as we begin to maybe admit some of us for the first time our own brokenness, our own uh, lack of self-sufficiency, the realization that maybe we've come to the end of ourselves. What do we do at that point on the journey? Where do we turn, or maybe better, to whom do we turn? Well, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to answer that question together tonight, and we're going to look at specifically now two more individuals, two different individuals uh, that turn to the Lord, and why they turn to the Lord is paramount to what's going on in this chapter. As you get to Matthew chapter 8, maybe just by a way of getting you acquainted with where we're at in the text, specifically in Matthew, Jesus has just finished the greatest sermon in all of human history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't read it, it's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's absolutely incredible, and I think it's fair to say it is the best sermon that has ever been preached in all of mankind, right? Because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preached it. Uh, but he is proclaiming a very different type of kingdom, right? To a very different type of people. In fact, he was known for saying things like this, Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Literally, for those that are bankrupt, for those that have come to the end of themselves, my kingdom is your type of kingdom. For those of you that are not trying to get in on your own self-righteousness, for those of you that have kind of come to the end of your own righteousness and you realize that you will not get there on your own because the standard is perfection. My kingdom is your type of kingdom. In fact, Matthew tells us earlier on in the gospel that this was the message of Jesus that he had gone throughout the, the, the region of the Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. That Jesus' ministry early on was all about proclaiming the kingdom, this good news that he had to communicate to these people and healing them. And the question is, why was Jesus about healing? We've talked about miracles even a little bit tonight. You heard Brian talk about them on stage of how our Savior interacts. Well, there was this belief in the Old Testament is they hoped in a Messiah and that they waited for the culmination that all the Old Testament hoped for, that one day God would bring a final atonement for our sin, a final deliverer for all of us, that whoever this man was that was predicted in the Old Testament that would come, he would be able to do miracles. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 35 that when this man came, the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. The lame would leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute would shout for joy. That this individual, who claims now to be the Messiah, would be able to do all of these things. So if you were a Jew, a faithful man or woman, reading your Old Testament, you expected the Messiah to be able to do these things. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to demonstrate his ability to do these miracles because these things authenticate his message. By showing that he can do these incredible physical healings, he's going to demonstrate that his message is true as well. And that is the core of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus isn't just going to claim now to be the Messiah. He's going to prove it. Matthew 8 verse 1. I want you to read it there with me. It says, when Jesus now came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. 
He's been up on a mountaintop or kind of a, a hillside, if you will, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The people are mesmerized by his speaking, and he's so different than all their other religious leaders, communicating such a very different message, not one about self-righteousness, but righteousness that's given to you for those that are bankrupt or literally poor in spirit. And they're intrigued. They've heard Jesus' words, and now they want to follow him. And these crowds now begin to take notice of him. And I want you to notice in verse 2, one such broken person who heard this message, this, this message that Jesus' kingdom is for anybody's. The most broken are included. It says there in verse 2, a leper came to him and bowed down before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It says here that a leper, by the way, that term is a term used in our Bible for all types of various different skin ailments. As we think through maybe leprosy in our definition today, it's uh, maybe the most extreme case, but in the Bible, it could have been anything from like a, a rash on your skin all the way to full-blown leprosy as maybe we're used to it. And the process would go something like this. If you had leprosy, you would go show yourself to the priest. You guys remember Aaron and Nadab and Abihu from earlier today? You would go to the priest and you would say, hey, listen, I've got this thing on my arm. I, I don't know what it is. It's a scab, but it's, it's, it started on Monday and now it's Wednesday and it's gotten worse. The priest would look at it and say, that doesn't look good. Okay, we're going to isolate you from the community. We're going to make sure that you don't uh, spread this disease. And they would watch you over time. And if this thing continued to get worse and it turned into what is now known as full-blown leprosy, you were excommunicated from the community. The priest would declare you unclean. You were put outside the camp, which meant you can't live with your family. You can't worship in the house of God. You can't interact with the people of God. You were outside that community. That is what this leper has been experienced maybe for weeks, possibly even for months. Now, Matthew, in his account of this story, doesn't give us a detail that Luke actually includes in his account of the gospel. As you know, Luke is a physician. And as he describes this man's leprosy, I want you to hear a detail in his account that's very important. He says, while this man was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered in leprosy. That word literally means full of. He literally would, we would use the word head to toe. It is as bad as it can get. This man has leprosy all over his body. It has absolutely consumed him. Now, in case you don't know about the horrors of leprosy, I want you to listen to this description of what leprosy is. Leprosy is an incurable disease that starts with pain in various parts of the body. Then sores and ulcers form on the skin where the disease eats inward to the bones rotting the whole body little by little, ultimately rendering the leper senseless due to nerve damage. During the process, the skin becomes scaly, it bunches up, and the extremities, such as the fingers and the toes, soften, are absorbed, or actually fall off. The result was a condition of intense psychological and emotional horror, as well as physical agony. Eventually disabled and unable to feel physical sensation, the leper dies from blood poisoning. It is a horribly painful, awful disease to have. And Luke describes this man as being covered in this state. And not only is he dealt with in this physical state, but he's also not able to be around other people. In fact, anytime a leper was present, he had to say, unclean, unclean. He had to announce to everyone around him that he wasn't safe and was isolated from this. And on top of this horror, leprosy actually in your Bible is actually a picture of sin. In the same way that leprosy is all-consuming, so is sin. Not just in our actions, but our, actually our very nature. In fact, two times in the Old Testament, God struck different people with leprosy as an example of their calloused, hard, rebellious 
unrepentant heart, to demonstrate the, the hardness of their heart of sin, he actually gave them a disease that mirrored that hardness of heart. There was no cure, and it was believed that only God himself could heal a leper of his ailments. So you were left in this stage now forever isolated, uh, left you isolated again from your community and all of your loved ones. So can you imagine for a moment what this life would have been like for this man? And yet in the midst of this, he sees a guy that thinks he that can make a difference. He believes that Jesus can make a way. And I want you to look at the leper's response to Jesus in verse 2. The first thing you notice that he bows down and he calls Jesus secondly, Lord. This is the first person, by the way, in the entire gospel of Matthew to address Jesus with this term. And then he says, if you are willing, not can you, I believe you can. The question is, will you? His posture and his words tell us something about what he believes about Jesus. He's bowing before him. He addresses him as Lord and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me well. Now, I want you to watch here in verse 3 now what Jesus does to this man. This is shocking. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, what's the last thing you want to do to a leper? Touch them, because what happens? You've just inherited their disease, their lifelong ailment. You are now unclean. That is at least the belief system of that day. And Jesus bucks the system. He touches this leper. It might have been weeks, maybe months, possibly years since the last time this man has had human contact. And Jesus, in a very loving way, reaches his hand out and touches him. As these crowds that are no doubt around that have just heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount, everyone else is fleeing. There's one person in this scene that's actually moving towards the leper, and that's Jesus. And he touches this man shockingly, and he says in the rest of verse 3, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus says to him, I am willing. This, by the way, is the posture of God all throughout both the Old and New Testament. To anyone who comes to him with a repentant, contrite heart, there is never a time in your Bible that you see someone approach God with this heart, with this type of conviction, with this type of repentant attitude and acknowledgement of who God is that is ever turned away. Jesus says, I am absolutely willing. From the most evil kings to uh, Moabite women by the name of Ruth to a leper, all of them are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus simply does not turn them away. And he says, be cleansed. He pronounces this man clean and in a sense gives him a new identity. And immediately, the text says, his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus in this moment demonstrates his power that clearly only God has. And then he says to him in verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He's not commanding them not to tell anybody ever. Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to go tell the priest first and foremost. Why, by the way, would Jesus send this guy first thing to the priest? Any ideas? To say what? To prove that he's God, absolutely. These were the priests that sent him out of, the, out of the community, right? They know this guy. They know he's a leper. They can do nothing about it. And all of a sudden, this guy who they know comes walking back in, and he is completely healed. A man who was covered just an hour ago, head to toe in leprosy. And the, priest is to, or the, the leper is to show himself now to the priest. And certainly, you can imagine in that conversation, the priest would have said, what in the world happened to you? 
Well, there's this guy by the name of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what he did in my life is the idea. So we see in this moment, this man now restored to worship, restored to fellowship, restored to his family, able to enter back into the community, a beautiful picture of Christ's healing. Now this guy, by the way, is a Jew. And in Matthew's audience, who Matthew was writing to, one of the gospel writers, uh, he's writing specifically to Jews. So Jesus demonstrates that I can heal the people that I've been after. But what about the Gentiles? What about the non-Jews? What about, the Bible just uses the word Gentiles to describe everybody that's not a Jew, whether you're white or brown or black, all of us probably in this room would be classified as Gentiles. Does Jesus care about them? Can he heal us as well? I want you to look at verse 5. It says, Then Jesus entered Capernaum. A centurion now comes to him, imploring him. This centurion, by the way, would have been a Roman soldier. He governed probably a, a hundred people or so. That's where his name comes from. And the Jews during this day strongly disliked the Romans because they were at this time oppressing them. He is not a popular guy amongst the Jews whatsoever. Kind of like my view of the 49ers after kicking my Cowboys out of the playoffs. That's kind of how I feel. Uh, there's two of us in the, in the room that feel that pain. The rest of you are 49ers fans. Uh, this is the view that the Jews would have had of this centurion. He is a very much disliked guy. But he comes to Jesus, implores him, and in verse 6 says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. The same word that he uses to address him, the leper used just a moment ago. He calls him Lord. And he says, I have a servant, right? I have someone at my home, probably a boy, that I care deeply about. He's paralyzed. He's in pain. And he's not going to be able to be healed on his own behalf. He says, Jesus, I need you to heal his servant. And this man is imploring Jesus. Again, you're getting a view of what this centurion believes to be true about Jesus. And in verse 7, now Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus says, I'm in. Game on. Yes, absolutely. I want you to notice the centurion's response in verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, this guy, this centurion, has such a lofty view of who Jesus is. He says, you don't even need to come to my home. You can stay in Capernaum, and if you speak the word, even from here at a distance, I believe that you have the ability right now to heal this boy in my household. And he says, here's why. Look at verse 9. He says, I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes, and he is uh, into my slave, do this, and he does it. The Syrian centurion says, I'm a man that has authority. I'm actually placed underneath authority. And whatever I say goes. And whether I'm present and I say to this person, do this, or if I send that through a letter through means of, a, of, a, of an individual, if I tell someone to do that, they do that because I have that type of earthly authority. But he says to Jesus, you have a different type of authority. You have divine authority. And in the same way, what you say goes. And in verse 10, Jesus hearing this, marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. Jesus says, this is what true belief looks like. Christ says, this guy gets it. He's not a Jew. He doesn't have his Old Testament. He doesn't know all the predictions that the, the Bible offers about who the Messiah would be, but he sees me. He's heard me. 
And he believes fully that I can do what I said I would do, knowing nothing about me. And in verse 11, it says, Jesus continues, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Meaning, many will come from all over. East and west means all nations. All peoples are going to come to me. Gentiles will be saved. And in verse 12, he goes on to say, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, into the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying some of the most unlikely people like you and me, are going to end up in his kingdom. And some of the people that grew up privileged that thought they had rights to the Messiah because of their heritage or because of their parents or because of their upbringing, they're actually not going to be the ones that are going to be there. Because the entrance into Christ's kingdom is not based on your pedigree. It's not based on your gifting. It's not based on who your parents were or weren't. It's based on what the centurion so clearly displays, which is an outrageous faith and belief in who Jesus is. And in verse 13, Jesus said now to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And in that moment, it says, the servant was healed that very moment. Jesus simply speaks the word and says, what you have asked of me, I will do on your behalf. His faith is what leads Jesus now to heal this man. The Jewish leper demonstrated this faith the centurion demonstrates this faith. Jesus comments on both of their faiths as pretty impressive. In verses 1 through 4, we see Christ go down to the lowly and the unclean Jewish leper and heals him, touches him, loves him. And in verses 5 through 13 now, he heals this servant boy because his master demonstrates the greatest faith, at least at this point, that Jesus has ever seen. Without even being physically present, Jesus simply says the word, and this person is healed. That, by the way, is the purpose of the miracle that Jesus did. To demonstrate, not only do I have the ability to heal physical abnormalities, but I have the ability to forgive sin. I have the ability to proclaim the unclean clean. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus is proclaiming. That faith in me is the key message to his kingdom. Friends, in so many ways, as we read this story, I want you to read yourself into it because we're supposed to see our lives as mirror images of these stories. We are the leper. We all have leprosy. We don't have a physical abnormality, but we have a spiritual abnormality that unfortunately has brought forth judgment and death. Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. That our life, because of our rebellious state before God, because of our sin, has caused a spiritual death before God. We are disfigured, and that disfiguration has caused an incurable disease. It is all consumptive, just like the leper. It affects us head to toe, inside to out. It has alienated us from man, and more importantly, from God. And we are actually as well the paralyzed servant. Sin has paralyzed us. It has caused pain in our lives. I would imagine if I opened up this microphone and invited you guys up here just like I could. We could share story after story about decisions that we have made, choices that we have done, and the pain that sin has inflicted in our lives. Both things that we have done, things that we chose not to do, that has, its effects have ravaged us. And by the way, sin isn't just our actions. The Bible actually paints a much more horrific picture of sin. It describes sin as our master. 
and we as its slaves. That it is fully consumptive in our lives. And that we need to understand that we are powerless to save ourselves from sin's presence in our lives. It has full control over us in every way. But we, just like the servant, have one who intercedes on our behalf. We have a Jesus who says, not only can I heal you, but I desire to heal and forgive you because Jesus loves broken people. And we are called just like the centurion to respond to him in faith, to acknowledge the hopelessness of our situation if Jesus doesn't enter in to that picture. Because we were unable to fix this problem called sin on our own. No amount of trying, no amount of behavior uh, changing or modification are going to help. We must believe by faith that Jesus alone is able, that he cares for the lowly and the needy, and that he mediates on our behalf, that he is our intercessor and has the ability to proclaim the unclean clean. Jesus in this picture is our greater priest who declares us by faith in him clean once again. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him, God made Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. Do you remember the picture that we talked about earlier of the priest that would confess upon the animal their, their, their sin, and they believed that as they prayed, they would transfer their sin onto that animal? That's the picture of Jesus here in this text, that God made him who knew no sin, that Jesus as a perfect man who walked this earth for 30 plus years was perfect in every way, and on the cross, our sin was transferred upon him. That he made him who knew no sin. He bore our sin. But that's not all that happened in that transaction. When Jesus went on that cross and he took the world's sin on his shoulders, past, present, and future of the entire world, he bore that sin. But he also transferred into our account his righteousness. The life that he could not, that we could not live, he lived on our behalf. And when God sees us in Christ, he sees us as righteousness. He sees us that way. Now friends, many of you in your journey, you've heard this before, and you've responded to that. You've heard about who Jesus Christ is, and you realized at some point in your faith journey, Lord, I need that. I need to bow my knee to Jesus Christ, and I need to understand that I'm a sinner, and I am saved only by grace in faith through Jesus Christ. But some of you, just like me in, in college, I was 18 years old, and I never had heard this message. No one had ever shared with me the truths of the gospel. I had never heard this news. And I sat on the second floor of the Lyceum in the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. And a guy shared with me these truths for the very first time. And I realized that though I had called myself a Christian my whole life, it was simply because I showed up at church and I did these things, but I did not have faith in Jesus Christ. I want to give you guys the opportunity, if you've never crossed that line, if you've never done that before, to do that tonight. And I want to invite a friend of mine on stage to maybe help illustrate this point as we finish. Aaron, where are you at, my friend? Come on up here, buddy. You guys give Aaron a big hand. Come turn with me right here, buddy. 
Aaron, come walk towards me. There you go. Big step right here. Got it? All right. All right. All right. This is my friend Aaron. If you haven't had lunch with Aaron, you're missing out. He's a funny guy. We got to eat lunch together. We're like five-hour friends at this point, maybe six at this point. Aaron, thank you for coming up here. All right. Aaron, as you were stepping up, I put a chair over here. You hang tight. Now, part of the reason, obviously, that I brought Aaron here is he's visually impaired. So he's going to have to trust everything that I say is true because he can't determine it for himself. So Aaron, behind you, while you were walking up here, I have placed a metal folding chair behind you. It looks pretty solid. It's been through the ringer. It's got some scuffs on it, but it's got four seemingly solid legs. Um, it looks like, if I would guess, to be a chair that would support your weight, probably my weight. Based on my description of that chair, do you believe that that chair, if you were to sit in it, would hold you? God, like just stole my sermon right there. Here's the picture that I want you guys to see. It's one thing to say, yeah, I think it could, to maybe intellectually ascend to that and say, yeah, I believe that. You guys can sit in the crowd and say, absolutely. Like, I believe that that chair would support Aaron's weight. It's a completely different thing to put your trust in that chair. Friends, this is the gospel. This is a picture of what Jesus is asking us to do. It's not merely enough to come to camp and to hear the messages or to sing and worship and to believe hypothetically, yeah, I, I think Jesus can do that for that guy or for that gal. But until we sit in the chair of faith, until we surrender, and until we allow that thing to bear our weight and to put our trust in it, this is the picture of the gospel. Aaron, you've demonstrated that so beautifully for us. So here's what I like to do. Yeah, give him another round of applause. Absolutely. I want to invite Brian and his team back up, and I want to sing one more song of worship, and I want to give you guys an opportunity to potentially respond to this. For those of you that maybe have not put your faith in Christ, there is no better time than now. I've asked Brian just to kind of lead us in one last song. I want all of you guys just to remain seated, if you will. We're going to kind of turn the lights down a little bit in just a second, and we're going to sing, uh, and we're going to declare the, the wondrous glories of God. And if you maybe tonight, if God is, is pushing on your heart, to make a decision for him, to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you to do something that requires a ton of courage. I want to ask you just where you are in silence, just to stand during this song of worship. Just stand so that we can celebrate together the good news of the gospel and what it has done in the lives of believers around us.